Welcome, everybody. I hope you're having a great, uh, great time. If you're a guest with us today, uh, you are a very important part of this service, and I'm, I'm glad that you're here. It's almost Christmas. We are third. That's right. Are you excited about that? So I noticed you're wearing blue today, and, and there are probably reasons. It's, it's a cowboy's uniform. Is that what it is? It's, it's uh, similar. Similar. <laughs> <laughs> Streaming all the way. So I got to ask, we've been talking about some Christmas movies leading up to this. Who has already watched their favorite, their favorite Christmas movie? No matter what it is, who's already watched it this year? Okay, okay, okay. Some of you are like, I watched a few. I don't know which one's my favorite. Yeah, I guess so. Or I used to think it was my favorite. I didn't enjoy it this year. It was a bum. Like, I'm not sure. How many of you have a movie, one movie, at least one, maybe more, that you are going to watch before Christmas? You are set to do it. All right. I got to ask this question now. Uh, Are any of them this movie? I got two no's. They're like, no. Oh, my word. Like, my heart is broken. Buddy the Elf? Oh, my I gotta say, um, they're angry at angry at. Angry That's right. That's right. Yes, you need to spend a little time with Buddy. Uh, if you've okay, so uh, how many of you would say I love the movie Elf? I know there are judges judges in the room. It's great. Like I love the movie Elf. Ooh, divided family. Ooh, that's fun. How many of you are like not so much? Not so much. Not so much. Wow. Okay. Okay. Y'all just take, like, ignore me for three or four minutes, okay? And, and we'll move forward. So, so obviously this is not a movie that's based on any kind of uh, biblical story, okay? So uh, this, is, this is imaginative in many ways. So the, the story of Buddy the Elf is you have this distant traveler, right? Uh, and he's, he's traveling into New York City, so he's coming into a new land, and he's learning a new culture, he's experiencing new things, and because of that, people think he's pretty... He's pretty crazy, okay? The way that he acts and the things he believes, lots of those types of things. And, and he's starting to try and figure out how to discern truth from fantasy, as are everybody else in the movie. They're trying to figure out what's real, what's not real. And this is all set in a very fanciful world uh, designed around all this story, okay? Uh, so you see themes of family and friendship, trying to figure out who's family, who's friends, what's important, how is that valuable, trying to figure that out. You have some good versus evil going on in the movie The Elf. You do. Um, I went forward too quickly. Uh, you have some good versus evil going on there. Then you have believing in the impossible. Like, a- am I supposed to believe in something that seems completely and totally impossible for me? Uh, that's an interesting one. Probably the biggest undertone is that it raises questions about consumerism and how often we can reduce something like a Christmas holiday all the way down just to spending money and, and buying things and getting things. And that's kind of a part of uh, the, the good that comes from the film. And then in my opinion, Opinion. Even though it is slapstick and stupid, it's downright hilarious. I just it makes me laugh every year. It's not my favorite Christmas movie, but it is one of them, and it reminds me of a biblical story. Now, some of you are going to go, "Okay, that is a jump right there. Like this is a leap." What about the movie Elf could remind you of a biblical story? <laughs> I'm not making this up. It really does. It reminds me of the story 
of the three wise men uh, told in Matthew chapter 2, other places in the scripture, where you have these foreign people coming to a new culture, traveling to a new world. It's experiencing all kinds of new things. They are immediately interacting with Herod, the leader, who wants to kill children, and they're seeking a particular child, and he wants to know where that child is. And so you have this goal of him using them as his detectives to find baby Jesus so that he can then go there and do away with him. Uh, and then, so it reminds me also of this song. Now, every week we've been singing a different Christmas carol uh, that relates to the passage of Scripture that we know. How many of you know this song? You guys know We Three Kings? So we're just going to sing two slides, just a little bit. You guys sing it with me. I'll, I'll get us started, okay? We three kings of Orient are bearing gifts. We traverse so far. Great. Field and fountain, moor and mountain, following yonder star. Wait, wait. Oh, yeah. Star of wonder, star of light. Star with royal beauty bright, westward leaning, still proceeding, guide us to thy perfect light. Well, good job, you guys. I grew up in a high church with choir robes and an organ and all that stuff, but then I've pastored not high churches for the last 20 something years. I've not sang that song in public in a long time. Long time. That was, that was fun. That was fun. That's the story. So let's jump to Matthew chapter 2 where we're going to read about these things. We're going to learn some stuff today that is going to affect the way you watch the news. Like we're going to learn some stuff today that will affect the way you see the world and specifically current conflicts that, that are happening in the Middle East. We're going to learn some things today that I think might be new information to quite a few of us. So let's read Matthew chapter 2 verses 2 if you've got your Bible. Turn there in it. If you don't, you can use your phone or your slate. If you don't have that, then you can read off the screen with me. Uh, this is the book of Matthew, the second chapter, starting with verse 2, tells this story. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying... Okay, so let's, let's dispel a little bit of a disagreement out there. This week, I was sitting in, a, in a, a place. There were a lot of different people in the room, and there was a nativity scene set up. And I happened to notice that in this nativity scene, it was a large nativity scene, so the shepherds and things were about two feet tall. They were pretty good size. And I noticed as I look at the nativity scene that there was baby Jesus, there's Mary, there's Joseph, there are shepherds, and then way across the room are wise men. And I said, okay, I'm intrigued. What's that about? And they said, oh, it's Mary. Mary doesn't think the wise men were there for Jesus' birth. They came a few years later, so she thinks the right way to set up a nativity scene is to have the wise men about two years away. I said, seriously? And they said, yeah, Mary does it everywhere. I said, what do you mean? They said, if Mary goes into Walmart and they have a nativity scene set up, she moves the wise men to another place. I said, seriously? And she goes, yeah, if Mary comes to your house and you have a nativity scene, Mary's going to move the wise men because she wants to make sure that you're paying attention to the truth of Scripture. And I'm like, Mary's bold. 
Somebody might smack Mary. Like, but when it comes to the reality of what actually happened on the night of Christ's birth, Mary is right. Uh, and that is the sense that the wise men did not technically come at exactly the same time as the shepherds, okay? Uh, the retelling using a nativity scene is not intended to deal specifically with exactly which time everyone was where, uh, only to say that the birth of Christ brought quite the crowd of different types of people to come and witness and celebrate what was happening. Most likely, Jesus was a year, maybe two years, nearly two years old by the time the wise men arrived and got there. Now, some people are like, oh my gosh, it's a great scandal. It's really not, okay? It's, it's really not a great scandal. It's just the different ways of trying to help us remember things of truth and things that are good. So as we read again, uh, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold... Wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Now, I don't know if that raises questions for anybody else in the room, but it raises all kinds of questions for me. It raises questions about what's this about a star? Typically stars don't just appear like they've been there a while, you know, like they, they don't typically just show up. Secondly, why were these people watching stars? Thirdly, how in the world did they know that this star indicated the king of the Jews? Like all of those things together make me go, wait a second. I, there's hopefully the scriptures reveal a little bit to me so I can understand more as to how in the world these wise men understand, you know, how this is all going, right? You bring this up in any college campus, there'll be somebody going, aliens. No, I don't think it's aliens. Okay, I don't think it's aliens. Uh, I don't think that's the answer, but I do think there potentially is a revealed answer in scripture that we can look to and recognize and see that will help us understand why were wise men from the east looking at stars and what was their reason for looking at stars? And what was it about this one star? I love it when little babies clap for me when I'm preaching. That's a good thing. You, others should do that. You should do that. And, and, uh, <laughs> and they saw the star and they thought of Jesus, the king of the Jews. Why did they know to do this? Why were the Jews not? Like the, the Hebrew people weren't looking for a star. They weren't, they weren't going, oh my gosh, there's a star. And it's shining down on Bethlehem. And we knew all that. So, so there's something going on here that exists outside of the big picture, normal process of telling how things are happening. And I think it's very, very interesting. The next verse in verse three says this. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. Okay, so something about the wise man seeing a star coming to Bethlehem looking for a baby scares a Roman governor, like a leader in the Roman Empire about the Jews who had been basically enslaved by the Roman people for many years by this time. So he's troubled, okay? It says he assembled his own chief priests and scribes of the people. These would be typically Jewish people. And he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, because these scribes and Jewish leaders knew of prophecies and stories, they said, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. Now, what's about to happen in, in the next verse is they quote the prophet Micah, Chapter 5 of Micah, Micah was written 700 years before, 
Okay, so Micah, Micah was a prophet leading up to the Assyrian destruction of the northern part of Israel. And so Micah was one of those, like Isaiah, a few other of the prophets of that particular century. And he says, Micah says, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, and this is them quoting Micah, okay, you are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Okay, wait. So let's 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 do a little let's do a little thinking here, okay? 700 years before in the southern part of Israel, uh there's some really interesting things happening. Now, I don't have a pointer here or anything, but uh, I don't know how good your geography is, but let's, let's play with this for just a second, okay? Uh, if you see in the map, you're going to see, if you look right to the very dead center of the circle, right in the very dead center of the circle, that would be what the Old Testament calls Babylon. Uh, prior, later, that would be Persia, okay? So, so this is what's interesting, if you look all the way to your left, where you get to the Mediterranean Sea, I think the word uh, Yadnana is there on, the, on this particular ancient map. Uh, that's the Mediterranean Sea. And that's that due north and south line of land there, that is the Gaza Strip. And that is where Israel is, okay? That is where Palestine is. That's where all the action going on in the news. If you watch CNN, that kind of thing, all that action is happening there. Now, if you go to your right on the map and down, you're going to see the Persian Gulf. That is the small strip of water that goes off the map to the bottom right-hand side. On the north end of that is current-day Iraq. Okay, On the very far end is, is, uh, is Kuwait and then ultimately Iran. And then to the right of the, or to, to the left of that, what is white on this map, that's current day Saudi Arabia. Okay? So just trying to paint the picture of what's going on here. Here's what we need to get. First of all, here's, here's that in current picture. Same, same exact image, just currently. The little bitty, teeny, tiny light blue right against the Mediterranean Sea, that's Israel. Okay, that, that's, that's what we have in this map. Saudi Arabia and Iran are gigantic. Iraq is quite a bit smaller. And Kuwait, the very dark blue and almost the dead center of the map, it's very, very, very small. That's what's happening. I'll go back. That's the ancient world. Uh, and that's the current world. Okay, so I'm going to go back and forth with that a couple of things. But let's do this. 700 years ago, before Jesus is born, the prophet Micah says that in the future... A ruler, a shepherd for the people of God will come from Bethlehem. That's, that's what Micah says 700 years before. About 600 years before, so 100 years after Micah, okay, the northern kingdom has already fallen and Babylon comes to the southern kingdom to attack them. Okay, Babylon would be where the dark brown and the light brown line right between Iraq, like, like that, that, that's Babylon. They travel over to, that would be that way on your map, they travel over to where Israel is now and they attack Israel and they defeat them. And here's what's crazy about what happens with Babylon. The Babylonians are very smart people. They're very smart people. Before being called Babylonians, they were known as Mesopotamians. Before that, they were the Sumerians, not Sumerians, but Sumerians, different group of people. Um, 
This is a very old. In fact, some scholars would say that this is the oldest group of people that is recorded by archaeology in the world. Okay? So this is a very, very old place. In fact, if you really want to get fun with this and you go back to the very first Hebrew man who is called out of the Chaldeans, that's where he came from, Babylon, which was previously called Chaldea, which Samaria, Sumeria, not Samaria, uh, all of those areas, okay? So here's what's happening. This gets fun, I promise. You're like, history's boring, get on with it, Brad. I want to talk about Elfmore. Okay, give me just a second. 600 years before Jesus is born, Babylon comes in and ransacks Jerusalem, ransacks them. Now, the prophet Micah's book is already written. They already know Micah has said that, that, that Jesus will come and will be born in Bethlehem. That's already happened 100 years before, okay? So what Babylon does is they take the young, intelligent, and educated Hebrew men and women, mostly men, but also women, and they take them to Babylon in what's known as the Babylonian captivity. So they not only destroy them, but they don't let them stay in their homeland. They remove them and travel them to Babylon to keep them. And here's the goal. They're thinking that in one generation, they can do a couple of things that will change these Hebrew men and women. First of all, they're going to keep them from having children. Secondly, they're going to teach them the cultures and the ways of Babylon They're going to teach them to worship the Babylonian God. They're going to teach them to eat Babylonian food. They're going to teach them to think and look like Babylonian thinkers. This is colonization in its finest. We see this in other countries throughout history, but this is what's happening with Babylon. While there, we meet some very interesting people. Have you heard of a guy named Daniel, for instance? The most famous book about Babylon is the book of Daniel. It's crazy to read. I love the book of Daniel, but it also will make your mind explode. All of the different stuff going on in the book of Daniel. While there, this is interesting. Daniel, being this young Jewish man who has been brought into Babylon by King Nebuchadnezzar, raises up and out of nowhere, God takes a young slave... And through amazing things that happen in his story, God puts him in charge of Babylon under the leadership of King Nebuchadnezzar. And one of the things that happens during this time, and you read about this time in Daniel, Jeremiah, 2 Kings, 2 Chronicles, Ezra, uh, one of the things is that Nebuchadnezzar makes Daniel chief of the Babylonian wise men. I'm going to read to you about that in just a second. But So get this. The Babylonian king, whose job is to make all the Jewish boys pray to the Babylonian God, is so impressed with the young Jewish boy's faith that he puts him in charge of teaching all the spiritual, religious, and and scientific thinkers and has him lead them on in how to think. Do you see how ridiculous that is? Like It goes completely and totally against what Nebuchadnezzar's desire was to do. And now the most vocal, the most strong-willed, the most committed Jewish believer in God that there is on the planet in that daytime is now in charge of the spiritual life of the oppressive country. This is where it gets interesting. We don't know this for sure. So I say this with a bit of uh, like openness to this is my opinion. This is what I believe happened, but I'm not alone. Lots and lots and lots of scholars out there believe this is also what happened, okay? 
Daniel most likely taught the forefathers of these wise men the law of God and the prophecies about the Messiah. Daniel takes the opportunity, being in charge of all the wise men of Babylon, to tell them that one is coming who will lead them all. And all of a sudden, the wise men of Babylon start thinking about and looking for this new coming king. Daniel most likely taught the forefathers of these wise men the law of God and the prophecy of Messiah. Let's see how it begins to to play out here. In the book of Daniel, uh, chapter 5, verse 10. So Nebuchadnezzar's dead now, by the way, and his uh, the, new, the, the Old Testament calls him Nebuchadnezzar's son. That's kind of a cultural oddity. Uh, history says he wasn't his son. He was possibly a grandson. But basically, at this time in history, uh, this new king is, is, is basically not really the king, but he's been, been put in charge as a steward, and he's kind of overseeing Babylon with less authority than Nebuchadnezzar had, which makes him insecure and a little worried. Think Think the guy on Lord of the Rings who was the steward of Gondor but not really in charge and and things are falling around him and and he's worried that those who were over him are going to judge him, like those kinds of things. Here's what's happening in in this set. The the queen is speaking to her husband um, and says this, because of the words of the king and his lords... uh, The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banquet hall, and the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. Color change would be like, oh my gosh, you're white as a ghost. Like you are scared. You are worried. What is wrong with you here? Okay. She says to the king, there is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, he's talking about Nebuchadnezzar here, Light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom of God's were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, that's his father, the king before him, your father, the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers. So this is how we know that Nebuchadnezzar had made Daniel in charge of all those groups. Okay? Because an excellent spirit, think at that, yeah, he was in charge of all of them. Because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named, this is really fun now, I'm, we're gonna have some fun with this, Belteshazzar. Okay, you guys know enough, you've been around the Bible enough to know that names have a tendency to mean things, okay? The, the under-shepherd king that we're currently talking about, who's married to the queen, his name is Belshazzar. His name is Belshazzar, which, by the way, means Baal save the king. Okay, Baal save the king. When Daniel, who's writing this book, relays his name, he relays it as Belteshazzar. So you have a king named Belshazzar, who's not even in enough knowledge of his country to know that Daniel is in charge of a lot of stuff. Who's learning that Daniel is in charge of all these spiritual leaders. And when he finds out what Daniel's Babylonian name is, he finds out it's Bel-Te-Shazar, which means Baal will not save the king. So the king, whose name means Baal will take care of me, 
has just been told by his wife that what you really need is to go enlist the help of the man whose name is the opposite of yours and whose name declares that Baal will not save you. Okay, do you guys get how that's an uncomfortable meal? Like that's, an, that's a weird, odd thing for Belshazzar now who's scared, worried, troubled to have to deal with. You see, we're dealing with a lot of emotional themes here. You have the selfishness of Belshazzar, the, the, uh, the Babylonian king. You have major selfishness on his part. You also have fear on his part. He's scared to death he's about to lose his world. It's all about to fall out from under him. You have this whole name thing, Belshazzar versus Belteshazzar, which in and of itself is the kind of thing that if you don't watch out in the Old Testament, you'll read right across it and not even notice. Baal saved the king. No, no, no. Baal can't save the king. And Daniel has been teaching the wise men of Babylon this truth throughout his time leading under the blind oversight of Belshazzar. Looks to me like a house of cards is about to fall. That's what we're looking at here. Could it be, again... That Daniel shows the power of God in his ability to see God working in these powerful ways. He shows that to Nebuchadnezzar, and he's, he's elevated. Nebuchadnezzar makes Daniel chief of the wise men of Babylon. Shortly after Belshazzar leads Babylon, they are overthrown by the king of Cyrus, uh, Cyrus the Great, the, pink, the king of Persia, Cyrus the Great. Persia overthrows Babylon and integrates the wise men of both countries. Now, we know that Persia did this. The Persians were very intelligent. They invented things like, uh, like libraries, and they were very focused on written words, not just spoken words. They were educators, and they, they were secularists in the sense that Cyrus, king of Persia, wasn't so focused on whether or not your God was stronger than my God. He wanted to know everything there was to know about your God and my God so that he could be the scholar who understands everybody's gods. Okay? Okay. Uh, Persian take the Babylonian wise men, all those teachings, and begin to integrate them with their own. 600 years later, the Magi, which by the way is a Persian word from the Persian language. So these Magi were Persian Eastern philosophers. That's, they were from Persia. These wise men are still looking for the Hebrew Messiah that Daniel taught the Babylonians about. They're also astronomers, which is why they're looking into the skies. They're noticing the stars. And one of the prophecies of Scripture is that there would be a star, you know, guiding the way. 600 years later, the Magi wise men are still looking for the Hebrew Messiah, and they find Jesus in Bethlehem. Let me go back to Micah 5.2. This is actually what was quoted earlier, but this is in Micah's own words. He says, but you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be a ruler in Israel, or just ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. Therefore, he shall give them up unto the time when she, is who, when she who is in labor has given birth, and then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. By the way, the rest of his brothers, we're talking about all of this region, a, a huge prophecy of people returning to Israel. 
Verse 4 says, And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. For now, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their what? Peace. 700 years before Jesus is born, in a world that has never had peace, that has been at constant war between all these people groups, Micah says, in the future, God will send one to Bethlehem. Another prophecy says, marked by a star, and that one will bring peace. He will bring peace. So from this, here's what we have. Even six and seven hundred years before the birth of Christ. This is one of the things I want you to take home from today. Even six or seven hundred years before the birth of Christ. And we could go earlier than that if we wanted to. God was already reaching out to people outside of Israel. Now, I'll be really clear. I'm, I'm pro-Israel, okay? And at the same time, if you are pro-Israel and you don't understand what you're talking about, you will say things that aren't right and still be pro-Israel, okay? Uh, God chose Israel to be the people who he would use to bless the world, and I don't have time to get into all those details, but one of the biggest ways that he would bless the world would be the birth of the Messiah, Okay? There's more to it than that, but the birth of the Messiah. However, from the very beginning, it was God's desire that that blessing bless the entire world and not just Israel. From the very beginning, the gospel of peace goes out from the God of the Old and New Testament to reach all people groups throughout the world. And if you really want to get fun, listen to this. In Iraq and Iran... And Kuwait and Saudi Arabia, 700 years before Jesus was born, there were people worshiping Jesus as the one who would be the coming Messiah. That's 2,700 years ago now, which means, and I'm not trying to pick a religious fight, but long before Muhammad was born, long before Islam existed, there were people in what is now known as Iraq, Iran, Saudi Arabia, and throughout the Middle East worshiping the God of the Old Testament and his ultimate savior king that would be born king of the Jews and would bring peace to the entire world. Is that not wow? Like wow, that is wow. God has been at this plan of reaching people throughout the planet for so long. I hear people talk about the relationship between the Old and the New Testament and the birth of Christ as if this were the narrative. God chose the Jews. They're the ones he really cared about. He didn't really care about anybody else. He just wanted to reach the world through them, and he was going to just raise them up and bless the world through them, and they're just going to be his chosen people, and that's really all that matters. There were all these other people that were outside. He was going to use them, and sometimes he uses them to teach the Jews things, and sometimes he uses them to, to be destroyed by the Jews and make the Jews look strong. And, and in the long run, ultimately, there's this idea that God must have had a change of mind because he sends Jesus, and now all of a sudden, God's concerned about the whole world. But previously, he was just concerned about the Jews. And I'm here to tell you that whether we're talking about the priest named Melchizedek from early in the scriptures, or we're talking about other stories like this, God has always been out to reach the entire world. 
God has always been focused on connecting to and reaching. Now, uh, that's not anti-Israel. That's recognizing the reality of what Scripture is teaching about how God blesses and uses his chosen people, Israel. And in today's society, how God chooses to use his chosen people, the church. We can figure all the details of exactly how that lines out in good Bible study and good discussion. But what I want you to understand is this. Most everyone in this room, I don't know if anybody in this room is predominantly Hebrew heritage. Most everybody in this room are not biological descendants of Abraham. Most, most everyone in this room, I would anticipate, are uh, Gentiles like me with, with genetic heritage from all over the world, right? I mean, I, I, I bought my Ancestry.com and Abraham didn't show up, you know? Um, how thankful should we be that from the beginning, regardless of who God chose to use along the way, that the goal was to bring about the Son of God born as the King of the world. Yes, born in Bethlehem. Yes, born King of the Jews. Yes, genetic uh, heritage connected to Abraham on both sides. Like, yes, all of that, absolutely. But in the long run, everyone in this room is a recipient of the grace of the God of the scriptures who has from the beginning been working to get out and beyond one people group to reach people from all over the planet. I think that's beautiful. And it could easily be missed if you just go, yeah, there were three wise men, they brought gold, frankincense, and myrrh, and that was it. No, to the local Jews in the early times, I want you to get something. The two different groups of people who were not direct family standing in the nativity scene are shepherds, the lowliest of Jews, and wise men, not Jews, but Persians. That's scandalous. That's to, to a Pharisee in, in the first century, that's scandalous. That, that, is, that is over, that's like going, hey, listen, I want to have this huge family reunion party and we're gonna decorate the whole place with pictures of people you don't know and most of the people we're gonna invite are not a part of your family. And yet it's your family reunion because of what God's doing in his expansion and growth to the whole world. Wow, I love it. And it even brings some value to what gold, frankincense, and myrrh are about. So let me close out today with just talking a little bit about that. And hopefully all of us have a greater sense of connection to what God's doing here. In, uh, in Matthew 2, 7 through 12, here's how the story ends. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had happened or appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word... <clears throat> that I may too come and worship him. Herod's a liar. He's a liar. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, they don't call these guys wise men for nothing. Okay? And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going to the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and they worshiped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. By the way, we have no idea how many wise men there were. 
There might have been 10 wise men, 20 wise men, 15 wise men. We don't know. The reason people tend to go with three is that there were three gifts. Okay? So, again, it doesn't matter how many there were. It matters who they were and why they were there. That, that matters. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed from their own country by another way. So God is speaking to these pagan Persian wise men as they worship the Son of God and warns them not to go back to the Jewish leader who's looking to kill the king of the Jews. That's the story. <laughs> and a very interesting story. So let's ask the question. So how do we worship like wise men? This is just the three things that we know from them. And, and please know this. Um, gold, frankincense, and myrrh have lots of purposes, lots of values. And I have this week and last week listened to several different teachings. And some of those guys and, and people went to different, like they got to different conclusions as to what it all means. Uh, this is my best guess. And, and I think that there's a lot of truth and help here in what I'm about to share with you, okay? So how to worship like the wise men? Let's ask that question. First, gold is the easy one. Gold's the easy one. Gold is value. It's finance. Uh, we happen to know that because Herod is about to try to kill Jesus, that his family is about to retreat and run to Egypt and live in another country for a while to protect him. It's obvious that the gold would be needed by that family <coughs> to exist in the near future. When we worship like the wise men, we give to the Lord of our possessions for the good of Christ and the good of his kingdom. When we, when we give offerings, financial offerings, when we give the things that we have access to for God to use for the purposes of his will in the world, we are acting like and worshiping like the wise men did. They literally funded his trip to Egypt so that he could escape what was happening and ultimately return uh, victoriously to Israel as an older child and be there to, uh, to do all the things that we read that Jesus did. One of the things that we see them doing is we see them giving of their very, very valuable possessions. Gold was, in the early stages of this, the, the first century, uh, one of the primary ways to have money. Uh, coins were typically made out of gold, but gold was used by its weight to trade for different things. So it was a very, very good commodity to have, and they gave some to Mary and Joseph on behalf of Jesus. Secondly, frankincense. Anybody do essential oils in here? You don't even have to raise your hand. You're like, I do, but I don't want to tell anybody. That's okay. Uh, one of the things, if you, if you study essential oils, frankincense actually is still used quite a bit. It's used in homeopathic things. Uh, it ultimately is a resin that comes from a tree, and that resin can be ground up into a powder. It can be melted into a liquid, uh, and it ultimately is something that has great uh, effervescent scent. It's used as a healing smell. So for, if you are the type person, get this, if you like to sit in a hot tub at the end of the day and put some of that powder or salt in there, that smells really strong and helps your nasal passages to like relax and chill out and it helps you get ready to go to sleep. If that's you and you love that aromatherapy kind of thing, then frankincense is probably something you've already consumed. It's used regularly in that world. It smells great. It's typically used to celebrate. Sometimes they would burn it like incense and the incense burning would fill up the entire room and it would make the house smell wonderful. The uh, 
One of the ways I like to remember this as an act of worship for us is that we can become like the frankincense and do what the scripture tells us to do and we can be the fragrance of Christ for the world around us. Listen to what 2 Corinthians says, what Paul wrote. But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. Now, this is not directly related to anything about frankincense, but it helps us think about what it might mean for us to be that wonderful aroma of God, bringing joy and hope to people simply by being around us. One of the second ways to worship God is to give him your attitude, give him your relationships, and give him the way that you make other people feel when they're around you. This would be a great frankincense thing to know. To one, he says, we are the fragrance from death to death. To the other, the fragrance from life to life who is sufficient for all things. For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. This points to us making sure that we are not simply okay with just getting people into a building, getting people to sit through a sermon, getting people to to show up and maybe give some money or whatever. No, no, no. We want to help change people's lives. We want to help affect the way they think of and see God. We want to help affect the way that they live, their emotions, their feelings, their relationships. We genuinely want to be a part of what God's doing in the world as we make people's lives better because of Christ. And we grow them closer to the creator of the universe who has ultimate control over their eternity and everything else. This is the fragrance of life that the church should be. The frankincense. And the last one is this. How do we worship the wise men when we think about the gift of myrrh? Myrrh is the hard one. It's the hard one because it also smells good. It's also a resin from a tree bark. Uh, it's also valuable. But its primary use in the, in the Middle East in the first century was to be used for embalming. Now, that has led some preachers to go the wise men knew about Jesus' death and they were bringing this as a gift looking forward to the death of Christ on the cross. That's possible. There are prophecies that deal with that. So if they were studying Old Testament prophecy, they may have recognized or noticed that. I, I think that if you don't watch out, that's a, maybe a little bit too strong of, uh, of, of, an, you know, of a thought here. But myrrh is, is also related to various other types of struggle. Think of it as like a deodorant, if you would, for people who it, it covers up the difficulty and the challenges of life. And so not just making things smell better, but actually dealing with our own challenged environment. I think it would be fair to say that when we have a willingness to suffer for Christ, uh, to deny ourselves... When we have a willingness to carry our own cross and participate in the work of God, we are worshiping Jesus like the wise men who gifted myrrh. Now, what does that look like in your life and mine? (laughs) Can we have a little fun for a second? Um, As a pastor, when challenging people to worship in this way or in that way, 
the pushback typically in my life at least has been, and I love this one, it's kind of fun, is you preachers, man, you're always after everybody's pocketbook. I'm like, no, I'm really not. But, he, but I just want to let you know, if I were, that's not the most offensive and it's not the deepest cut of the things that we are after. <laughs> and that's that if we're doing a good job as leading people spiritually, we're after your whole life. Like, like the scripture is after your, your every priority. Like the scripture is after your deepest longing. Like the thing at the base of you that wants whatever it is that you want. And we think about the wise men giving gold, frankincense, and myrrh. They're leaving nothing out here. We're talking about giving possessions. We're also talking about donating to God the life I'm going to live as a good example for others to follow him. And I'm going to sacrifice. I'm going to give things up. I'm going to hurt for the good of the gospel. I'm going to sacrifice for the good of the gospel. I'm going to participate in the work of God, which is not always light, simple, and easy, but often categorized by the weight of burden. Let me tell you something. Learn to love someone who's not walking with God to the point that you think about their eternity separate from God, and it's a burden. But if you live life without that, you're not really understanding the heart of God. You're not. Learn to live with the thought that your neighbors and coworkers and friends and family need you to represent Jesus to them so that they might hear his voice and follow his will in their own life. And all of a sudden, it affects who you are. First, it makes you an obedient Christ follower. Secondly, it makes you someone who deals with a burden that you have to regularly lay at Jesus' feet, which makes you even more dependent on Christ, which puts you in an even better place to live. As far as Christians, folks here at Woodlawn Church, we are God's people doing God's work, living God's priorities. And those priorities have every right to get in the way of our individual priorities. That's what it means to take up your cross daily and to give your life to Jesus. It, it literally means you're saying, Jesus, your priorities matter more than mine. Your desires for me matter more than mine. Your wants for my life get first billing, mine gets second. And ultimately, here's what's really crazy. It's not so much that his desire for me gets first billing and mine gets second. It's that I submit mine so that mine starts to become his. And now I'm wanting what he wants. Not, I don't really want it, but I'll submit to it because he's God and I'm not. No, no, no. It's a step beyond that where that may be how it begins. But how it ends is, oh my gosh, Lord, I'm starting to want what you wanted for me. And I've, I've literally given up that which was my dream, that which was my desire. This is why you have to be very cautious of some of the preaching you might hear online or on television, where it makes it seem like God's job is to make your dreams come true. That's the furthest from the truth. God's job is to save you from your dreams, to save you from your heart, so that he might implant in you a new heart, so that over time he might grow you to a place where your greatest desire is his desire for you. That's submission to him. That's what it means to be a disciple of Christ.
That's what it means to worship like the wise men. Can you imagine traveling into a foreign country where you're not wanted? Where you're surrounded, where the king is willing to kill to get what he wants? Where the the first day you're in a new country, the king calls you into his court and says, hey, I'm watching what you're doing, I'm following you, and I want you to help me. It's just nerve-wracking. And then being in a dream and God wakes you up and says, hey, listen, don't trust the king, get out of here. Go the other direction. Defy the king of the country that you're currently in for the sake of this baby that I sent you so far to see. That is a group of men who are submitting themselves to the will of the God who's guiding them to do that which is right. And they're following him. How to worship like the wise men? We do give our possessions and our valuables. We do. We do give our life and our hope and our joy and our relationships. And we do give our priorities, our willingness to sacrifice and our willingness to live for him. Would you pray with me? Jesus, I ask that you would guide and direct us as your people. Lord, we've talked a lot today about things that we do not fully understand. There are some details that I I don't know, some things that your word doesn't uh, share with us, or maybe some things that I've not found yet. But Lord, you have shown us enough for us to be amazed at the way you work in, around, and through your people. I want to be your people. We want to be your people. And we are, but we also wake up each day with a choice taking up that cross and carrying it ourselves. Lord, as we think about these magi, these wise men, who most likely learned about seeking you from their parents and grandparents and others before them, who ultimately learned it from Daniel, who you used as an oppressed slave who raised up to rule over the oppressive country and then ultimately taught its spiritual leaders to be looking for the God he was looking for. They read your word. They memorized your word. They sought after your promises and your prophecies. And they, and they were led to baby Jesus. Wow. May we be that sensitive to your teaching. May we be that willing to follow your guidance. And may we find exactly what you want us to find in life as ultimately, Lord, you find us. We trust you with this, Jesus. In your name we pray, amen. Would you stand with me? One of the ways that we respond to the Lord here is we have a prayer room in the back of the room. We have at least one or two folks back there that will be there to pray with you. So I encourage you, if you've got something you're dealing with, something you're facing, we'd love for you to just join one of the prayer team members in the back and just, and just let them walk you through that prayer time. If you need some time alone with the Lord, just to, just to talk to him and you, and you just want to little zone out everybody else and talk to the Lord, then you can do that right where you're standing. Or you can come and kneel at the altar at the front of the room. We'll leave you, we'll leave you alone. We'll give you that space to, to worship him. Um, in all things, let's worship the Lord and respond to him right now. In your name we pray. Lord, we, Jesus, we trust you. Amen.